This is Guns and Butter. The so-called human nature is a product of the social climate and the social institutions. We are what we are because the social institutions in society. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dong Ping Han. Today's show: the unknown cultural revolution. Dong Ping Han teaches history and political science at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. He was a farmer and manager of a collective village factory during the Cultural Revolution in China. He is the author of *The Unknown Cultural Revolution: Life and Change in a Chinese Village*. Today's program is an edited version of a presentation that was part of *Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution*, a three-day symposium at the University of California at Berkeley in November 2009, sponsored by Revolution Books and Monthly Review Press. Dong Ping Han discusses the importance of work, the educational system in Mao's China. The recent riots in Shenjing Province between the ethnic minorities, mainly the Uyghurs, and the Han Chinese, the famine during the Great Leap Forward, and describes his coming of age during the Great Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm not just talk about my book. I'm gonna tell you my love story. And、uh, when I teach in classroom. Tell my students that actually it's possible for people to work together to solve their problems, to improve their lives together. Most of my students said, "I don't believe you." I say, "Don't need to believe me, right? Because you have very different life experience." And in America, most people believe human nature are selfish. Right, and people are bored or selfish. They only care about themselves. They will not want to work unless they are forced to work. That's most American belief. So at Warren Wilson College, we have a work day. So every year on March eighth, it's a Wednesday normally. Everybody come out. To do some project on campus, about the majority of people come out. Faculty, staff, students come out to work together. We do that every year. It's a big event on campus. And、uh, when I tell my students during the cultural years, seventeen million people, young people in the urban area, volunteered to work in the countryside with farmers. Students said, "I don't believe that, <laughs> right? It must be between a gang and work. It must be between gang." I said, "Why in China had to be between gang and work? Here on the work day, we all came out to work. You don't have to be have a gang because our nature, if we have a nature, we want to work. We are what we are." Through working together, right? When I tell my students 
The welfare program in this country actually deprive these people's humanity. They don't understand why. If a person can no longer work, do you think he's still human? There are many, many people began to think they become trash. They become burden on society. They lose their self-confidence. They lose their own dignity. Work is very important. Work is made what we are. I had a colleague one time invited me to his classroom to talk about Mao and, and communism. And when I came to class, he said, "Don't pin, give me one minute. Let me get my class in order. Then I'll turn to you." And he forget I was there. He began to talk about Mao, how they control society. He said something shocked me. He said Mao would send people into the streets, neighborhood, and randomly shoot people. That's how Mao controlled society. That's a professor of political science. I was so shocked, but no students in the classroom raised any question about that. That's how American students are taught about socialism and communism, right? And uh, I grew up in the countryside. Both of my parents were illiterate, and uh, before I went to school, most of my cousins and uh, the children who were older than I was were not in school. And during the country years. The Chinese government empowered the Chinese farmers to set up their own schools. The Chinese elites today were telling the Chinese people, telling the world, the Cultural Revolution was a national disaster. During which time, education suffered tremendously. The truth of the story is, actually, the Cultural Revolution. Expanded educational reach to the countryside, and I did my research mostly in my own county, Jima County in Shandong Province. Before the cultural years, there was only one high school in my county. There were seven hundred fifty thousand people in my county at the time, and the high school had only two classes. Each year, each class had 30 students. So each year, only 60 students from that county were able to go to high school. Before the Cultural Revolution, 17 years before the Cultural Revolution, that high school only produced, graduated, 1,500 high school students. 800 of them left the village, left the countryside. To go to college, and 700 others mostly go to work in the urban area. So there were 1,050 villages in my county. Most villages didn't have one high school student at the time. During the Cultural years, during the 10 years, so-called national disaster, my county built 89 high schools. From one to eighty-nine in ten years' time. 
Before the Cultural Revolution, we have seven middle schools in the county. By the end of 1976, we had 249 middle schools. Every village had a primary school. Everybody was able to go to school free of charge without exams. It's become an entitlement. Everybody was allowed to go to school free. And you know, in China, there are many, many scholars talking about school should be run by teachers or professional educators. But I think if you allow professors, you allow professional teachers to manage education, education always suffers. For a very good reason. Because the teachers think first about their own self-interest. That's what happens. They try to make education to become their own privilege. They didn't want more people to receive the education. I looked through Chinese uh, record. Every time professional educators are in charge of education, education suffer. The only time exception is during the cultural years. When the farmers, when the workers were empowered to run their own school, and school flourished, and the poor people, the working class people, have real access to education. And I was telling my son, I was so lucky I was growing up during the cultural years, because the educational model at the time was so different. It was not like today in China, students were burdened with exams every day, every week. And it, there were no weekends for, the, for Chinese students. Why? Because they need to prepare themselves to pass the different exams all the time. And the school, the teachers are measured by the number of students they were able to send to college not about how much students learn, actually. And during the country years, not only school expanded greatly, but also the, the format, the way of education was carried out is very, very much transformed. The students, when I was in middle school, was empowered to writing their own textbook. We go to the factories, we talk with the workers, engineers. We write a book on how to repair farm machines, internal capacity engines, how they were made, how they, were, how they were, should be repaired if something wrong. We talk with the farmers and develop our own textbook on agriculture. I was taught when I was in, in middle school, in high school, and how to farm, how to grow things. Every class in high school, in middle school, has an experiment field. And it's a part of our job every week to go to our garden to look after our vegetables, to learn how to grow, how to plant, how to take care of. It's become a part of my nature. And now I grow most of my own vegetables. Over the year, I grew about 40 kinds of vegetables and grain. I grew soybeans, corn, tomatoes, 
potatoes, everything. I do that at Warren West College, try to demonstrate the community how much you can do if you really care about the environment, right? So when I was growing up in the, in the school system, there were no exams almost. There were no exams. The examination, if we had one, it's always open book. And students were allowed to talk to each other, to discuss the copy from each other. If you didn't, didn't know before, you copied from others, you learn. Right? That's the most uh, uh, idea on exam. Yeah, they just, before the Cultural Revolution, many, many teachers used the, used the grade, used the marks as an instrument to control students in the classroom. And during the culture years, that part was taken away. The students empowered to debate, discuss with teachers. I learned so much from that format of education. When I first came to the United States and I attended University of Vermont, I was working for my master's uh, of history. One of my professors had a class on cultural evolution. And in the class, everybody said the cultural revolution was an educational disaster. I was so angered. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm, I was a product of the cultural revolution. Right? Anyone of you want to come out? Let's have the competition see who knows more. <laughs> right? None of them dare to compete with me, right? None of them dare to. So that discussion about cultural as disaster was ended there. And there are many, many Chinese young people grown up with that perception, the cultural failure. But the truth of the matter, the cultural revolution trained a generation of people like myself, not only empowered with books knowledge, but it was a lot of knowledge about society, about the real, real productive work. And I think China, the reason China was able to develop so well in the first 30 years, and I think by comparison, even China today, even though I think that China has a lot of problems, still China did much better than most other third world countries. You're listening to professor of history and author Dong Ping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Many people in this country, or in the world, like to pick on China. But they don't, they don't know how big progress China made over the 60 years. Right? And there are a lot of scholars in this country talking about China when they talk about you see, the famine in 1960, the Great Forward. They didn't know famine was a common place in China before the Chinese Revolution. There are famine every year. They didn't know how, because of the Chinese Revolution, famine become very, very rare and only happened once. Right? And it's because 100 years, unprecedented natural disaster in 100 years. The worst drought and the worst flooding in that three years. Yes, 
we had grain shortages. But because the communist government took very good care of the Chinese people, we actually didn't have a widespread famine during that three years. We had a lot of hunger, but most people survived. One of my professors got a huge grant, Guggenheim, to study the famine in China. I went with him. And his thesis, badly miserable, the constitution was for the Chinese people. But most farmers told him, without the government support, more people would have died. That's actually very, very true. In my hometown, during the famine, I was five years old when the Great Forward Famine took place. My village was able to eat the wild, dried wild vegetables from Yunnan province, southern China, three, four thousand miles away. So the government shipped wild vegetables and the relief grain from far away to help people survive. So the communist government did a lot for, for the Chinese people. And partly because I think the, the communist government enabled the people to work together, to organize them, and to work as a community, not just work for themselves. And uh, two days ago, one of the Chinese uh, most famous scientist. He was a rock scientist. He used to teach in this country, in California, uh, Institute of Technology of California. And in 1949, when the communists came to power, he wanted to go back. And the American government, the, the Secretary of the Navy said, I would rather kill him than allow him to go back. Because his knowledge is worth five divisions. So eventually they arrested him for 15 days. Then House arrested him for five years. Eventually he went back in 1955. And he helped China develop the rocket program. The satellite was sent to space in 1971 was done by him and his colleagues. He became very, very famous in China. Everybody knew him. When he died, everybody, most people in China, particularly scientists, demanded the Chinese government give him a state funeral. But the government didn't do it. Why? Because he said something, I don't think the current government liked him. He said he was excited only three times in his life. The first time was when he got back to China after five years of house arrest. The second time, in 1958, he was able to join the Communist Party. The third time was when the Chinese government in the early 50s ranked him as one of the five people moved to China. All the four others were workers, farmers, and soldiers. 
And he said he was very excited because he was able to be ranked as one of the person with the worker, with the farmer. That's what China was like. The intellectuals would consider it's a big honor to be ranked with the working class. People not work for themselves, for their own rank, for their own owners, but work to how to make the community, make the nation better. And in 1985, the new Chinese government, Deng Xiaoping's government, gave him a big honor. As the, the, the scientist who made the most contribution to the Chinese science and technology, when he got that honor, he said he was not excited. Yeah. Because the only three times excited, he just mentioned that, right? And he also said something very, very well, made me think a lot. He said, if China abandoned socialism, if China abandoned modern thought, Chinese nation will suffer, and the Chinese state will fail. At the time when he said, when he said that, most people didn't think very hard about what he mean. Looking back today, I think he was right. This summer I was in Xinjiang, where the words rise. I was there on July 3rd, and the rise broke out on July 5th. And uh, it really, really shocked me to see 50,000 people came out with big knives and axes, began to kill people. I never thought China had ethnic problem like that. And I thought a lot afterwards. I don't think that's an ethnic problem. It's a class clash. And most people said, even the people who were trying to kill the Han Chinese, and the Han Chinese tried to kill the ethnic words. It's not that simple. You know, the Xinjiang area is a minority region where the words live. There are 13 minority people living in Xinjiang. The words are one of the biggest. In the old days, when the enterprises in Xinjiang was owned by the state, in China we call it all people's ownership. When the state ran these enterprises, they made sure the world people were treated equally. They get equal employment opportunity, they got the same pay, they got the same benefit like the Chinese, Han Chinese, like myself. And the Han Chinese and the, and the ethnic minorities worked together very well, like brothers. I was so moved when I was in Xinjiang this summer. On the one hand, the words were killed in Chinese. There were a lot of old words came out, shaking hands with Chinese, were telling us, you know, we are brothers. We are brothers. And the people who are killing people are only minorities. Right? 
Of course, it's not that simple. The reason why that old words were able to tell in Han Chinese, they were brothers, because they lived in the socialist time. They really, really live, work together like brothers, care about each other like brothers. But today it's a different story. In the last 30 years, most state-owned enterprises were privatized. The guy who was in charge of Xinjiang was a guy from my hometown, Shandong province. And his name is Wang Lequan. He had been number one leader in Xinjiang for 18 years. During this time, most state-owned enterprises become private property. And mostly owned by people from my, my province, actually. So the private capitalists from Shandong province had a very, very different hiring policy practice. They would hire Chinese from my province first. If they couldn't find any Chinese from my province to work for them, they hired Chinese from other provinces. So the war people couldn't get employment anymore. If they did get a job, they were treated very, very differently because they didn't speak the same language, because they didn't have the same culture. So they were mistreated, right? So they have a resentment against the rich Han Chinese, number one. Number two, in the old days, when the resource in Xinjiang was developed, it was developed for the benefit of whole Chinese people. And today, because these developers were the capitalists, they developed these resources for their own benefit. And the Xinjiang people had resentment against that too. That's why they rioted. The reason I see this is important is because I think this thing can happen anywhere in China. The class clash, the class contradiction in China has been intensified and the capitalism. I think there is no way China will be able to survive along this capitalist path. The Chinese government tried very hard to suppress people's discussion of the Cultural Revolution. They didn't allow people to talk about it. I think the reason they were able to get away because the government never, don't you being said, we will not discuss that issue. That's what happened in China. But as things become more and more, the gap between the rich and poor become bigger and bigger, I don't think the Chinese government's ability to suppress this will be very, very long. And Larry this afternoon asked me, there are more in China? Yes, of course there are moist in China. The majority of Chinese people are moist. Why? The working class, the farmers, the workers, who enjoyed free education, free medical care, lifelong job security, want to get their benefit back. Every year I take students to China. They were always amazed to see the long lines outside most Muslim. The Chinese working class, 
still have fond memories of the Cultural Revolution, of the socialist practice in China. And uh, I think I'll stop here. If you have any questions. You're listening to Professor of History and author Dongping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Maybe you could give us a sort of on-the-ground picture of the kind of the new values that were being created in the village in which you lived. In other words, how did people actually change their thinking about each other and caring for each other, or how the values of people, you know, went through changes during the Cultural Revolution? Okay. Uh, I always believe the so-called human nature is a product of the social climate and the social institutions. We are what we are because the social institutions in society. And uh, what changed the people's uh, mindset or their behavior during the cultural years is because people, the government and the community care about each other. And uh, in this country, the reason why we are selfish is because nobody cares about us. If we don't care about ourselves, nobody will care about you. But during the cultural years, in the socialist climate, you don't need to care about yourself. Other people will care about you. They will care about you as much as they care about themselves. I think I remember I told a story uh, one time is uh, my friend, and uh, he was two years older than I was. He's a very, very smart person, but he had a problem. He couldn't get up in the morning. <laughs> there are a lot of people like that. I couldn't get up myself, too. I was able to get up because my mom and my father wake me up every morning. So every morning I came out to work. And one day, this, this friend of mine didn't come out. The production team leader said, Dong Ping, go to wake him up. So I went to wake him up. I yelled at him outside his house. The first day, he answered, oh, I'll be there in a minute, right? And he came out the first day. The second day, the production team leader said, go to wake him up. So I yelled, he didn't answer. I came back to the leader and said, he didn't even answer this morning. I go in, wake him up. So I went in his house. And his grandma said, the child needs sleep. His grandma was very cold at the time. So I came back to the, told the leader. So his grandma was upset. And the leader said, don't care about mind about his grandma. Go to wake him up. <laughs> so I could wake him up from the bed. And uh, I did that almost every day when I was in the village. And this guy is a very, very intelligent person. When he was up working with us, he worked very hard. Right? He worked very hard, so every day we dragged him along. And he did fine. He was very, very popular with, the, with the, his peers because he knew how to play an instrument. And he was able to tell jokes, things like that. He did very well, get married. A lady, he was very, very handsome, very, very tall. 
and he liked to drag me in front of mirror to show. He was tall than I am. He was more handsome than I am. But that's what he he was socially not not smart or awkward. But in 1982, when the land was divided up, when the clarity was disbanded, nobody woke him up anymore, and uh, he got into a problem. And his wife left him, and uh, he became developing mental problems. Always, this is my belief: if a person was deprived his right work. Together with others, he will develop mental problem. Right, so he was sick. So in 1998, I went back home to the village again. I saw a person walking naked on the street in the distance. I said, "That's him." So I was running after him. He saw me. He ran back home and I followed him into his house. I said, "Dying? That's you?" Naked, walking naked on the street, he said, "Yes, I don't want to leave. Life is not good. I'm miserable, right?" So I try. I said, "You see, Dayang, don't think negatively. Think about positive things, right? Why couldn't you, right, start something new?" I said, "You see, there are a lot of people in the in the village play instrument right at night." Why don't you join them? You are very good with your instrument, right?、Uh, I said, don't want to see any people. Don't want to see others. I said, you can you can paint. You used to be very very good painter. I said, well, remember you were you were able to paint horses very well, right? Why don't you paint?、Uh, he said, no, I don't want to do anything like that. I said, I'll be in the in the village for another ten days. I want to buy a painting from you. So do one for me. He said, "Okay, I'll do one for you." And、uh, the next day, he came to my house. He said, "Don't you know another can do? Cannot do it. Give me one year. Next year, when you come back, I'll I'll give you a painting." I said, "I told him, I said, 'You know, I'm not interested in your painting. I'm more interested in you. I want you really stand up to live like a person, right?'" He said, "Yeah, I promise you, I will." But after I came back home here. Three months later, my sister wrote to me said he committed suicide. And when I read that, when I read my sister's letter, I cried, cried for a long time. I knew if the collective didn't disband, and if if the village was still working as a community, somebody will help him along, and he will not need to kill himself. But nobody cares. After the collective was disbanded, I, I remember I want to say a few more things about that. Right, the 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 reason why Chinese society became like that during the certain time is because people care about each other. If you have a problem, the village community will come to help you. When my father worked at the time, whenever he was sick. The factory management will use their only truck to come to my my village to pick him up to send him to the hospital. That's not a tradition. That's a socialism. And、uh, 
Whenever it rains in my wallet, for example, you don't need to wake people up. Everybody rush to the collective threshing ground to take care of the grain, the public collective grain there. When snow, everybody came out to clean the street without asking. This is the, how the community work. So it's a social climate that made China was, what it was, was like during the time. Okay. Yes, thank you. I'd I just uh, like to know what you see to be the essential elements for the creation of a constructive social revolution. Uh, I think that, that has uh, a lot to do with, uh, with Moss uh, writing and Moss aspiration as a revolutionary. I don't know whether you ever heard of Moss writing called Serve the People. And uh, I think for the Chinese people, for people like me, more people like my mom, my father, who were illiterate, Moss language is unbelievably easy to understand. And there's one famous Chinese linguist. He said, Moss writing is very, very unique. For scholars, his writing is very, very high style. But at the same time, it's the language common people can understand. And I can still recite the most uh, uh, article, that one, to certain people. And uh, that article itself, most people don't understand what communism is about. From most perspective, a communist is somebody who's dedicated for the service to the common people. The reason why the Communist Party, Communist Revolution in China was so uh, fascinating is because they believe they are sacrificing themselves to liberate 95% of the Chinese people. They are working not to, for their own benefit, but to work to make sure the oppressed get what they deserve in society. And uh, during the current years, they developed a, a very, very different standard. Uh, for example, county magistrate, who used to be a very, very big official in the county, right, were asked to work with farmers 200 days a year. At that time, you saw county officials on bikes every day working with the villagers in the field. And the commune leaders were asked to work 300 days a year. And the village leader was supposed to work with farmers almost every day, except when they, are, they need to go to meetings. So it's a comprehensive transformation. I mean, today many people write about Cartagena talking about how the government persecutes intellectuals by asking them to work with the farmers, right? But at times, under that social climate, there are many, many people who are seeing that it's persecuting today. At that time, thought the revolution empowered them as well to come out of their um, university to work with farmers, they considered it was a revolution as well. You know, professors, doctors used to only work in the urban area. Now the government encouraged them, right, to integrate with the working class. 
So it's a different social climate. I think it's, a, it's not a one thing, it's many, many other things, but it's a, a social climate of working for others as owner, as a, as a really, really great honor to be able to help others and uh, to do selfless things for the community and for the public. That's what happened. So, Professor, from my understanding, you were very young when you were part of organizing a Red Guard unit in your village. So as a young person during the time, what were some of the subjects, if you can remember, that people were widely debating? The, the Cultural Revolution, I would uh, always consider the Cultural Revolution as an empowerment movement. Before my talk, somebody asked me, he said, Mao used the Cultural Revolution to consolidate his own power, right? And I don't, I don't agree with that. I think Mao's power is very, very solid. At the time when he started the Cultural Revolution, he was so solid. I mean, most people didn't understand. The reason why Mao was so popular, so powerful, because not because the government didn't allow people to criticize Mao. Because your neighbor, your friends, will not tolerate you criticizing Mao. Why? Because Mao's policies represented the best interest of Chinese working class, 90% of them. If you criticize them all, you're criticizing them. You are hurting them. So they will not allow you to talk about that. The reason I said the corporation was empowerment is more because more began to say, if the working class not empowered to take control of the state, then the revolutionary accomplishment the Chinese Revolution achieved, right, could be taken away by the elites very easily. I'm not just telling from, you see, uh, my, my own speculation. Actually, there's evidence to prove. Mao wrote on the margin of the, there's a book he was reading, the Suet Political Economy textbook. And in that textbook, he talked about how the workers in a socialist society enjoy the free medical care, enjoy the right to work, and enjoy many, many things, right? But I'm all said on the margin. If the working class people don't control the state, all these socialist benefits could be taken away by the elites. That's proved in China already, right? So I think the cultural revolution was made to empower working class to empower the people to take the state matters into their own hands. And Mao said the government was to, for people to educate themselves, to empower themselves. So he was willing to go through all the chaotic period in the beginning, allow the young people to criticize their leaders. You're listening to professor of history and author Dong Ping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let me tell you what I did when I was 11 years old at the time. And uh, I felt so empowered because most said students can criticize their teacher, can criticize the principal. I wrote two big character posters when I was only in third grade. 
Why? Before the Cultural Revolution, I had a, my family had a knife. It's my grandfather went to France during World War I to work there. He took home as a gift. Very valuable for the family. I took to school. And I didn't know the school didn't allow you to bring a knife to school at the time. <laughs> there are no rules like that. As soon as the teacher saw the knife, he took it. And uh, my father asked me, where's the knife? Where's the knife? He knew I was very naughty. He, he knew nobody else in the family would take it, only me. So I had to lie. I said, I didn't touch it. My father didn't believe me. He beat me again and again. So at the beginning of the conversation, I wrote a big poster. Where's my knife? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the teacher, actually, the teacher was very upset. She didn't rebel. I didn't get my knife back, <laughs> by the way. But I was able to write out, where's my knife? And uh, confronted her. I feel so empowered. <laughs> I feel so empowered. And uh, my friends and I and, uh, published a small pamphlet. We use uh, the stencil paper. You write on a, on a, with an eye pen, right? And you print and distribute on the marketplace. You feel empowered. You can do that. And in my middle school at the time, there was about 13 newspapers published by students. It's very, very empowering. I mean, I see these people today in China. They are the mainstay of Chinese society because they are empowerment uh, experience during the cultural years. You started your talk with a very, very exciting uh, observation about uh, people not being forced to work, that people will work uh, for social need and so forth building a revolutionary movement. But I think Mao hesitated on that question, as the socialist movement did generally in those days, and didn't go as far as the idea that I understand that millions of uh, comrades on the left of, of Mao argued for the abolition of the wage system, the abolition of uh, wage slavery, in yeah. whatever form it takes. Um, I, don't, I don't quite get what your, what your main point is, but I would argue... From my own experience and from what I know about Chinese government policy towards people who refuse to work, is that people uh, who refuse to work still get their shares of grain in the village. The Chinese uh, commune system, for commune system in the rural area, the communes for the countryside, all the production, the grain, the harvest, was distributed on uh, 70% of the grain was distributed on a per capita basis. So whether you worked or not, as long as long you from that village, you get 70% of the grain. Only 30% was distributed on the basis of how much you worked. Right? That 70% was enough for you to get a buy. Right? In the factory, my father worked in a state-owned factory, and uh, I know there's always one worker in that factory was not happy with the management and was uh, refused to work, but they always get paid. You always get paid. For example, I think this, that's also a philosophical argument Mao made. In 1949, when Mao came to power, Mao made a decision 
to keep all the people who used to work for the nationalist government their job. All the former state uh, employees for the nationalist party were kept by the new government. When people argued, why can we afford to keep them, to pay them, right? Mao asked, can we afford not to keep them? If you don't give people a job to work to make a living, they will do something else to hurt you. Right? I always argue, unemployment is the worst waste of human resources. Right? Don't you think? In this country, the reason we have so, such a big prison population, 5% of world population, versus 25% world prison population, it has a lot to do with unemployment. When people don't have a job to make a living, they do something else to get by. And that's what they can hurt society. I think there are a lot of good things in the, the so-called you see, peasants' moral economy argument, right? You want to make sure everybody in your community survive through legitimate means. Because if you don't, they will hurt you. And I think socialism is based on a peasant's moral economy model to make sure everybody do what they can and get what they need to survive. If you don't, you dehumanize them, you dehumanize yourself. And in the capitalist system, of course, you think, see, 5% unemployment is optimal unemployment because that's how capitalists need in order to make more profit. But I think as a, as a, a human race together, we face so much environmental challenge today, I don't think we can survive as we, we're doing now. We need a, a different paradigm. During the Chinese cultural revolution years, because the social climate is different. I'm telling my, my teacher, for example, this teacher who, who took my knives, right? Had completely changed during the cultural revolution years. He and I to work together. And in a way, our human nature, our behavior at least, is dictated by what the society encourages. Um, I mean, some people, when they criticize the cultural revolution, they think the Chinese society should be perfect at the time. Of course, no society can become perfect, can never become perfect. Um, but I, I personally feel, I began to think, the Chinese uh, rural community, the commune uh, style of uh, organization, is some kind of closed to a common society. And everybody did whatever they could and get what they ever they need from the community. Of course, according to Marxist theory, we need abundance. We need to see the production to um, progress to a level we have a huge abundance. I don't think we can ever reach that level we will never be able to produce enough to satisfy everybody's greed. But we definitely have enough economic 
productive power to produce enough to make sure everybody has what they need to live adequately. Right? And from that level, I still think the Chinese Cultural Revolution on the whole, if my village, if my county was the typical example of the Chinese society, I'm very happy with it. I think it's close to a perfect society. We were poor, no doubt, compared with the United States. But we didn't have a homeless population. We didn't have drug abuse. And uh, we have free education, free medical care. Everybody has a home. Everybody worked together. There were some problems. We didn't have a crime almost. I was telling my, 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 my sister at home this, uh, this summer when I went back, I said, you know, during that 13 years, when I was nine years old, I started working in the village. I started working in the collective when I was nine, on Wednesday afternoon, Friday afternoon, and Sunday. Until I left the village when I was 23. I said, we didn't have one crime in the whole village during that time period. I even didn't remember who died during that time. Why? The Chinese life expectancy doubled during the most time. From 35 years to 69. We were 20 years ahead of India in life expectancy. So what do you expect? A third world country, a poor country, was able to do that much? It's surprising for me. I didn't know, I didn't understand at the time. I understand more after I left China, see what's going on in the U.S. When I first came to the United States, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, northern Burlington. And all of my neighbors were poor people. My next door neighbor was on welfare. And they were much younger than I was. They had four sons, and both were illiterate. They were drinking on beer on porch every day. But their four children came to my house, asked me, can I have a piece of Chinese bread? Every day. I was so shocked. That's not the America I thought what it was. When I moved to Boston, I rented a, a, a cabinet from a rich landlord. And one day he asked me, what do I think about America? I said, I'm not impressed. <laughs> he was so angry. He was so upset. He was upset. I didn't realize how upset he was. He said, why? I said, because you have so many abundance, but at the same time, so many homeless people, so many hungry people. I was shocked, I said. And uh, at the end of the year, he asked me to, to move, right? <laughs> and this guy has a, has a daughter who was my son's age. And uh, my son was uh, six years old at the time. They have a four years old boy. And, uh, and his name is Edward. Oh, said, I don't like Dongping. I don't like Dongping. I was always wondering why he didn't like me. I didn't do anything to him. <laughs> so I figured out maybe that's what his father was talking at home. I hate rich people, said. He said, I have a problem with rich people. <laughs> right? 
And、uh, yes, I do. If there is poor people, I don't think the rich people should have that much. The Chinese government today, I mean, not the Chinese government, they released some information today. We are in a financial crisis now, right? In the world, the Chinese millionaires, their their assets doubled. The Chinese government, we think, is a good thing, right? While their wealth doubled, how many people suffered as a result? I'm very, very proud of Mao's China because we didn't have prostitutes, because we didn't have drug abuse, because everybody had a job, because everybody take care of. Even though we were poor, I'm very, very—I don't feel the same way about China today. To see the environmental degradation, to see my hometown, the river was so polluted. To see many, many poor farmers' children were no longer able to go to school. When poor farmers, when they were sick, they were just waiting to die. This just got me. I just feel I couldn't identify with the country as strongly as I, as I can with most China. Been listening to Dong Ping Han. Today's show has been the Unknown Cultural Revolution. Dong Ping Han teaches history and political science at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. He was a farmer and manager of a collective village factory during the Cultural Revolution in China. He is the author of The Unknown Cultural Revolution: Life and Change in a Chinese Village, published by Monthly Review Press. Today's presentation was part of Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution, a three-day symposium at the University of California at Berkeley in November 2009, sponsored by Revolution Books and Monthly Review Press. More information on this event is available at www.revolutionbooks.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo dot com. That's b l f a u l k n e r at yahoo dot com, or call five one zero eight four eight six seven six seven extension six two eight. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand, and divided we will fall, 'cause love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls: wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?